The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, I'm Anne Hook, Publications Manager at Lymphoma Action, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Graham Collins, who is Consultant Haematologist and Lymphoma Lead at the Oxford Cancer and Haematology Centre. Hi, hi Anne. Can you tell us a bit about your role and what it entails? Yes, of course. So uh, my role, as you say, is I'm a consultant haematologist and uh, I'm the lymphoma lead. So really, I have very much specialised now in lymphoma patients, so patients with all varieties of lymphoma. Uh, I do three outpatient clinics a week and that they're pretty much exclusively full of patients with lymphoma, new patients, follow up patients. Um, I also share in what's called the ward attending. In other words, some months of the year, I look after the patients with lymphoma, myeloma and some other blood disorders who are admitted to the ward and I also have various research roles and I'm also quite involved in clinical trials as well. We often hear that people haven't heard of lymphoma before they or someone they know are diagnosed. How do you describe lymphoma to people who perhaps have never heard about it before? Yeah no that's a really good question and we do start um further back um, in patients' understanding often uh, of lymphoma compared to other cancers. You know, if we say to somebody that you've got lung cancer or prostate cancer, then it's fairly obvious what they have, you know, cancer of the lung or cancer of the prostate, but lymphoma doesn't have the word cancer in it. So what is lymphoma? Well, the first thing I do say to patients is that it is a type of cancer and it's a horrible word to use. And I do acknowledge that, but it's important that people understand what the disease is they have. And of course, as soon as they go on the internet or look at any information, it's very clear that, that it is a type of cancer. And cancer itself is uh, uncontrolled um, cell division, so uncontrolled pr- proliferation of cells. doesn't necessarily mean it's a very quick um, proliferation or cell division. Some lymphomas are, but some are very slow, uh, but it just means they're not controlled. Um, now, what's the cancer of? Um, you know, if it's not a cancer of the lung or a cancer of the liver, what sort of cancer of? Well, it's a cancer, really, I, I would say, of the immune system. The cells that go cancerous are called lymphocytes. Uh, now, lymphocytes are a type of blood cell, so sometimes it's called a blood cancer, but often blood tests are completely normal. Uh, and that can be a source of confusion for patients. You know, if I've got a blood cancer, why wasn't this picked up earlier by my doctor on blood tests? Well, actually, often blood tests are completely normal. So I don't think it's that helpful necessarily thinking of it as a blood cancer. It's really a cancer of the immune system. uh, uh, And the particular type of the immune system is called the adaptive immune system. Now the adaptive immune system is that part of the immune system that has memory. In other words, if you have a viral infection or if you have a vaccine, your immune system remembers that and can attack the uh, relevant sort of bacteria or virus much more quickly second time around. It provides protection. And that adaptive immune system Um, is made up of lymphocytes. The lymphocytes are what form your adaptive immune system. Uh, And lymphocytes live in lymph glands on the whole. They do actually travel all around the body and you can find lymphocytes anywhere, but lymph glands are where, and the spleen in fact, are where lymphocytes are mainly found. And lymph glands are part of your lymphatic system. That's the drainage system of the body. These lymphocytes sit in those lymph glands, surveilling this drainage fluid, ready to respond to any infections that uh, uh, the body Uh, may succumb. So uh, I I would call lymphoma a type of cancer of immune system cells. You mentioned how fascinating um, lymphoma is and I wonder whether you could share with us a little bit more about why you find um, lymphoma so fascinating. 
Yeah, so I do, I do find lymphoma endlessly fascinating. And I think the first thing I want to say to that is, um, I don't want to downplay, though, the emotional and psychological uh, you know, um, trauma, you know, that patients go through with a lymphoma diagnosis, or some patients, certainly. So please don't misunderstand, you know, a fascination for taking it lightly or, or um, being glib about it. You know, I see plenty of patients with lymphoma who have a difficult time, so I, I don't underestimate that at all. But what I would say is, you know, if a patient sees a specialist, it's much better that that specialist is interested in the disease than if they're not interested. So I hope that um, explains the attitude that I take towards lymphoma. But no, it, it is fascinating. It's fascinating on a number of levels. Uh, it's fascinating biologically. So, you know, the immune system is incredibly complicated. I would argue probably one of the most complicated systems in the body. And the lymphocyte, it's interesting, you know, to, if you look at a lymphocyte down the microscope, it, it looks fairly dull. You know, it's not a particularly special cell. And yet it's one of the most complicated cells in the human body. It's really the one of, you know, T cells, for example, are the conductor of the, uh, of the immune response. You know, it's very, very complex um, mechanisms. B cells, from which a lot of lymphomas derive, you know, can make antibodies or they can have memory so that they can protect the body against future exposures very, very complicated um, cellular mechanisms behind that. And the, and the lymphomas that arise from that are very complicated because these lymphocytes are very complicated. The life cycle of a B cell is, is uh, very complex and lymphomas can arise at any point, which is why we have so many subtypes. So biologically, it's fascinating. Um, epidemiologically, it's fascinating. What I mean by that is who it affects and the, the sort of geographical distribution of lymphoma. So whereas most cancers are common as you get older, non-Hodgkin lymphoma is very much that sort of cancer. However, Hodgkin lymphoma largely affects younger people, not exclusively, but largely. Um, so it's actually the commonest cancer in the teenage and young adult uh, population. And to be honest, why that is, we don't really know. So, you know, very interesting age distribution, geographically as well. You know, if we were having this conversation in Southeast Asia, then T cell lymphomas are far commoner in that part of the world. Uh, than in Western Europe or Australia or North America. Uh, so very interesting geographical differences. And also, you know, the, the question of what causes lymphoma is a fascinating one. There are certain types of lymphoma where we know the cause. So for example, there's a type of lymphoma of the stomach called gastric malt lymphoma, where we know that quite a lot of them are caused by an infection of the stomach called H. pylori, very common infection, rather rare lymphoma. So it's not the only thing that causes the lymphoma, but it's certainly a key factor. Um, we know that uh, suppression of the immune system. So for example, if you've had a kidney transplant and you're on immunosuppressive drugs, that increases the risk substantially of lymphoma. But having said that, most patients I see in clinic with a lymphoma, we cannot identify a cause. Um, it doesn't seem to be hereditary for most people, it doesn't seem to be environmental, you know, a particular exposure in the environment. So what is it? You know, the jury's out really. And lots of lots of research is is still underway. So some interesting findings, but also some major questions in epidemiology. And also, as a clinician, um, it's it's very very challenging. Um, you know, pa yes, patients can come with a lump. That's the common presentation. But we have lymph glands all over the body. So um, patients can come with a lump in the tummy, and consequences of that, such as jaundice or renal impairment, uh, they can come with a lump in the chest with breathlessness or cough. And you can also get lymphoma outside of the lymph glands. So people can present with all sorts of symptoms. So for me as a clinician, um, it's a very interesting and challenging uh, disorder. Graham, can you explain the different types of lymphoma? 
that, uh, that people may have a diagnosis of? Yeah, so there are many different types of lymphoma and it can be very confusing, but it's very important that the patient and the clinician knows the exact uh, type of lymphoma they have. Now, there are over 50 different types, but in broad terms, there's something called Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it's a pathologist really that tells us if a patient has Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Hodgkin's is defined by something called the Reed-Sternberg cell, which is an abnormal uh, cell that's seen down the microscope. That's the cancerous cell of Hodgkin lymphoma. So if they have that, it's Hodgkin's. If they don't, uh, and it's still a lymphoma, uh, it's non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And there's really only one main type of Hodgkin lymphoma called classical Hodgkin lymphoma. That's what most patients with Hodgkin lymphoma have. There is a rare subtype called nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin lymphoma, absolutely terrible name, uh, but about five to 10% of people with Hodgkin lymphoma have that type. It's very, very important to recognize that though, because it is treated um, differently. So that's Hodgkin, named after the great Thomas Hodgkin, pathologist of the 19th century, uh, one of my medical heroes who first described um, the cases of lymphoma that, that uh, took his name uh, in subsequent years. So that's Hodgkin lymphoma. If it's non-Hodgkin lymphoma, that's more complicated. It's a more common disorder, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And the next sort of division is whether a patient has B cell or T cell. And that's because there are two types of lymphocytes called B lymphocytes or T lymphocytes. B cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma is far more common. And if a patient has B cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma, we then think do they have uh, high grade or aggressive B cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma versus low grade or indolent. Um, B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, and within each of those two categories, there are distinct subtypes. So the commonest type of high-grade or aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma is called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. That's the specific sub, that's a specific subtype that falls within the brackets of high-grade B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And if it's uh, low-grade, one example would be follicular lymphoma, which is the commonest subtype of low-grade B-cell uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and they do actually behave very differently, the high-grade or aggressive versus the low-grade or the indolent. As the name suggests, high-grade or aggressive are more quickly growing, and sometimes patients can come to us quite unwell with a high-grade or aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma because it's been growing quite quickly, potentially. And it sounds bad, doesn't it? Aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. However, they are very sensitive to treatments. And with the right treatment, we can actually cure most patients, not everybody, unfortunately, but most patients we can cure with the right treatment, which is chemotherapy and um, in combination with an antibody therapy. And there are other subtypes. There's something called Burkitt lymphoma, lymphoblastic lymphoma, but they're all uh, you know, potentially curative. They're all pretty aggressive, um, but very sensitive um, to treatment. On the other hand, you've got your indolent or low-grade B-cell and Hodgkin lymphomas, and patients are, are usually very well when they come to us with this because they're so slow growing. And perhaps the patient's just noticed a lump or perhaps there's a mild abnormality on the blood test that the GP's picked up. Uh, it's diagnosed, but the patient has no symptoms. Um, and often in those patients, we don't suggest that treatment is the right thing. So watch and wait or active surveillance is a more common strategy in those patients. They're generally not considered curable, uh, which obviously does sound like a bad thing, but what I would emphasize is the treatments when they are needed are often very effective at getting people into remission, in other words, shrinking the lymphoma down. And those remissions can last uh, for, for many years um, sometimes. So, you, so the prognosis for patients with indolent or low grade non-Hodgkin lymphomas in most cases is actually very good. Can I ask you, Graham, why are they not curable? 
And why is the low-grade lymphoma not not curable as the high grades and the Hodgkin lymphoma yeah. are? So excellent question, and I, I'm not sure I can give an easy answer on that. My my, my fairly um, straightforward answer, which is the only way really I have of rationalising it in my brain, is that most of the treatments we use work better on cells that are rapidly dividing. Um, so chemotherapy, for example, preferentially targets rapidly dividing cells. Um, so things that are growing quickly, chemotherapy is generally better at killing. Things that are growing slowly, chemotherapy is generally a bit less good at killing. But as I've said, actually, the treatments still work very well in low-grade lymphoma. So quite why they don't do the last bit and actually get rid of all of it, I'm not sure. It may be something to do with what are called cancer stem cells. In other words, our treatments may be very good at getting rid of the bulk of the lump that a patient has, but there may be a rare population of cells which hide away from treatment. Maybe they divide very, very slowly, but they feed in uh, to the main bulk of cancer cells, and our treatments may not be very good at targeting that. Now, that's all a bit theoretical, um, but that, those are the sorts of reasons that people sometimes give. You also very interestingly explained how Hodgkin lymphoma got its name. Some of the names are very complicated, like Waldenstrom's macrodobulinemia and yeah, uh, yeah. large B cell. Can you explain why, why they are given the names they have? Yeah, so a lot of them are to do with what it looks like down the microscope. So diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is a good example. So when you do a biopsy of somebody with lymphoma and you put it on a slide and the pathologist looks down the microscope, if it was a, a biopsy from a lymph node, lymph node has a very um, specific structure. You know, So you expect to see something down the microscope that looks like a lymph node. However, in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, it's completely replaced by the lymphoma. There's no structure to the lymph node anymore. And that, so there's an infiltrate of abnormal cells, which is diffuse. In other words, there's no structure to it. It's just diffusely infiltrating the, the lymph node. Uh, and when you look at them, they are large cells. You know, they are just larger than normal lymphocytes. And when you do special stains, it's clear that they're B-cells. So that's where the diffuse large B-cell lymphoma comes from. Uh, follicular lymphoma is because when you look down the microscope at a normal lymph node, you see round structures called follicles. I think the word means little bag, actually, is where it comes from. But um, you see these things called follicles. Those are normal structures. But in follicular lymphoma, those follicles are very big and expanded and all crowding together. Um, so very abnormal follicles. Uh, it's not a diffuse infiltrate like diffuse large B. It's, it's got a very structured pattern. That's why it's called follicular. And then, yeah, the, the, my favourite ones are the ones with people's names attached to them. So Burkitt lymphoma, I think, is, is a great one. De Dennis Burkitt was a, uh, a missionary surgeon um, who lived in the, I think, 1960s or worked rather in the 1960s. Uh, and he um, did a lot of work in sub-Saharan Africa and described children, actually, who had lymphomas of the jaw and the face. It was quite, quite distressing um, pictures of, of um, children with, with lymphoma. And he did very careful study and realized that um, children who lived below a certain altitude only had that disease. And he rightly made the connection with malaria. You know, if you live in high altitudes, malaria isn't the problem because mosquitoes aren't there. So malaria was important. And he also sent some cells off to his friend, Professor Epstein uh, in Manchester, who shone an, a, an electron microscope at it and saw these little inclusion bodies within the cell and described a virus called Epstein-Barr virus, which is a very common virus, gives us glandular fever. That was the first time Epstein-Barr virus was discovered within, within these cells of this thing called lymphoma, which then took the name 
Burkitt lymphoma. Now, in this country, we don't really see what's called endemic Burkitt's. That's the that's the um, lymphoma affecting children. We see something called sporadic Burkitt's, which isn't associated with malaria, but is associated with EBV and still has his name. So um, that's a great story. Uh, we've heard about Hodgkin, and then Waldenstrom again is the name of a person. I think I think his first name was Jan. Um, he's from one of the Nordic countries, and he described people who had very thick blood, so very viscous blood. And he realized that it was viscous because it had a very big abnormal protein in it, big macro protein globulin. So it became known as Waldenstrom's macroglobulin. Emia is in the blood. So big protein in the blood described by Professor Waldenstrom. How long would it typically take from seeing somebody to actually getting a diagnosis? Yeah, so the key thing is the biopsy. So a, a typical pathway of somebody coming to us would be they go to see their GP with a lump that they've noticed, uh, perhaps in the neck or under the arm or in the groin would be typical places. Um, then the GP is usually a very quick at referring patients in for a biopsy. Now, they might not come to a haematologist first, uh, and that's appropriate because it might not be lymphoma. So let's say they may go to ENT, ENOS and throat surgeons, if there's a lump in the neck. The surgeons usually then request a biopsy that might be done in radiology, for example, with some local anesthetic using an ultrasound scan. And then that biopsy goes to the pathologist and it takes, you know, a good sort of five to seven working days for them to do all the necessary tests on that biopsy for the result to come through. Um, and usually that will give the specific diagnosis. Occasionally another biopsy is needed, uh, but, you know, 80, 90 percent of the time the diagnosis comes through on that first biopsy. And presumably that's essential for deciding the treatment and the way forward for your patient. Absolutely. So without an accurate subtype, we really can't um, proceed with treatment. And that's why sometimes a repeat biopsy is needed. Um, you know, some patients, their initial biopsy is something called a fine needle aspirate, which is where cells are literally sucked out in a very fine needle. And that can sometimes say lymphoma or no lymphoma, but it can't tell you what type of lymphoma it is. So, you know, you would need a second biopsy to take what's called a core biopsy, where a, a small piece of the lymph node is removed intact, if you like. Um, and that's what we need to subtype it. And you're right that the treatment absolutely depends on the subtype. So I wonder whether you can tell me a little bit about the different treatments and outcomes for lymphoma. Yeah, so another cause of fascination for me with lymphoma is the variety of management approaches. And I say management rather than treatment, because actually we don't always suggest treatment um, for patients with lymphoma. In fact, uh, sometimes it's the right thing to do is not to treat it. And that does sound counterintuitive. And, you know, some patients aren't very understandably find it challenging to understand why when the doctor's just told me I've got cancer, uh, am I being told that they're not going to treat it? But that is actually the right way of managing the condition. And it's usually low-grade lymphoma patients, so low-grade or indolent non-Hodgkin lymphomas in patients who are well, so asymptomatic, you know, they're otherwise well. Perhaps they've just noticed a lump, but the lump's not really bothering them, and they're otherwise feeling very well. Uh, then we embark on a program that's sometimes called watch and wait, sometimes it's called active surveillance, um, some patients label it watch and worry, you know, which is understandable because it can be um, very anxiety provoking. But the, people have studied um, patients on watch and wait and happily the anxieties that a lot of patients do understandably experience early on, they often do ease with time. I think as people get used to the diagnosis and uh, actually realise that, that the um, low grade lymphoma they have often is very indolent and slow growing and doesn't need treatment. 
so that so watch and wait or active surveillance is appropriate for some patients. For patients though where our treatments are aimed at a cure and those patients would be patients with Hodgkin lymphoma or high-grade non-Hodgkin lymphoma, then we do often offer um, chemotherapy uh, early on because we want to try and cure these patients. And that chemotherapy is often combined with a type of immunotherapy called rituximab. That's for patients with B-cell uh, non-Hodgkin lymphomas. And as I say, that's usually with the aim of cure. And patients with Hodgkin lymphoma and high-grade B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma usually, uh, more often than not, um, are cured with the treatment, as long as they're sort of fit enough in order to take the treatment that's offered. But actually, you know, we routinely give chemotherapy to patients in their 80s um, and some patients with other medical problems. So most patients we can treat and the majority, not everybody, but the majority we can cure. For those with the lower grade um, non-Hodgkin lymphomas, generally the treatment isn't aimed at cure, but actually it's still very effective. And when patients do need treatment with low-grade disorders, again, we usually offer chemotherapy, often a bit gentler, usually in combination with, an anti with the antibody rituximab or another sort of antibody treatment. And um, that's highly effective at inducing a remission, which just means we've um, you know, got the, shrunk the cancer down so it's not causing a problem. And those remissions frequently can last you know, eight, nine, 10 years. Um, and then when patients need treatment again, the treatments can still be effective at that point. It's not to say we don't struggle with some patients. Sometimes we do. You know, some patients sadly do have more difficult lymphoma than others. But the usual course of lymphoma is an aim at cure if it's Hodgkin's or high-grade B-cell non-Hodgkin's or an aim at, at, at good long-lasting remissions in low-grade lymphomas. It, it sounds like you have a lot of treatment options. And it also sounds like you have to adjust according to your patient um, what is best in, for, for their case. Is that, is that so? Absolutely. And, and what's a, a, a key part of managing every patient with lymphoma is something called the MDT, uh, which stands for multidisciplinary team meeting. Now, this is a, a national requirement that all new patients with cancer are discussed at an MDT. And at that MDT, there are people like me, um, so haematologists or medical oncologists, but there are also radiotherapists. And that's really important because I haven't mentioned radiotherapy yet, but radiotherapy plays a, a key part in the treatment of some patients, not all patients but some patients with lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, high-grade and low-grade B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So it's important that a radiotherapist is at that MDT. Plus, we have a pathologist there who makes sure that we're treating the right condition, you know, that the diagnosis is secure. And we have radiologists there who show us exactly where the lymphoma is in a particular patient because that helps guide the number of courses of chemotherapy um, or whether radiotherapy is appropriate. Yeah, so the MDT is, is key really in helping that. And you talked about um, people on active surveillance, active monitoring. Um, how many years might they be on that, that approach to treatment? Yeah, so we've actually got quite good data around that now from quite a large clinical trial that was performed several years ago. Um, and people who were on the active surveillance or watch and wait arm were typically uh, on, that, on that management strategy for three years. Now, that's an average. And of course, the problem with averages is that means half of the patients needed treatment before that time and half of the patients needed treatment after that time. Um, but, you know, when I say a when I see a patient in clinic and we discuss uh, active surveillance, watch and wait, that's the sort of typical figure uh, that I would give them. But there are plenty of patients who don't need treatment uh, beyond that. And actually within that trial, about one in 20 patients the lymphoma actually reduced and shrunk without any treatment. 
um, you know, lymphoma is an intriguing condition and spontaneous remissions, as they're called, although not common, sometimes do happen. For many cancers, we hear how important it is to catch the disease early. Is that the case with lymphoma? Yeah, so it's important that when a patient has symptoms that the diagnosis is made quickly because, you know, it's very worrying time. So I, I don't want to minimise the importance of a rapid diagnosis. What I would say, though, is lymphoma is unlike other cancers, whereby we expect it in many patients to have spread around the body by the time the diagnosis is made. And that's because of the nature of lymphocytes, of the cells that have become cancerous. They do travel around the body as part of their normal job. So we expect the lymphoma often to have traveled around the body. And the important message there to patients is it's not a disaster if that's happened. You know, we sort of expect that it's going to have happened. So it's not like other cancers where spread around the body often is a very bad thing. That's not so much the case in lymphoma. Sure, if we pick it up very early, that can sometimes help. But even if it's quite widespread around the body, the outcome of treatments are usually still very good. Um, so, you know, that's important uh, concept to understand. Thank you, Dr. Collins, for such a fascinating talk about what you explain as a very fascinating disease. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks, Anne. For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action website at www lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action. Inform. Support. Connect.